Welcome to my podcast, You Are Here For Now, a series of conversations inspired by my new book of the same name. I'm your host, artist and author Adam J. Kurtz. Each week on this show, I'll chat with some of the smartest, kindest, most generous, beautiful, amazing, talented people I know, and ask them about all of that being alive stuff that we don't always get to talk about, like passion, purpose, mortality, true love, defining success, mental illness, and figuring out what's next when you don't really know what you're doing. These conversations have already helped me so much, and I can't wait to share them with you. In this episode, I'm chatting with friends, podcast hosts, and professional queer people, Jenna Wortham and Fran Tirado, about work-life balance, authenticity, and resisting the pressure to let yourself be defined by others' expectations. Jenna Wortham is a sound healer, Reiki practitioner, herbalist, and community care worker oriented toward healing, justice, and liberation. Jenna is also a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, co-host of the Still Processing podcast, and co-editor of the anthology Black Futures. Fran Tirado is a writer, critic, and co-host of the podcast Food for Thought. Fran was most recently at Netflix managing their LGBTQ audience engagement strategy, and their work in advocacy for queer rights has won them numerous accolades, including the Stonewall Vision Award and MTV's inaugural Logo Legends honor. Jenna and Fran, welcome to the podcast, and let's dive right in. I have a question for you. Here it is. How would you, I love this question. How would you describe what you do to someone you don't want to talk to you about work? <laughs> and, and then conversely, like, how do you describe it when it's someone that you totally want to like dig in on the specifics with? You know, this has changed for me a lot. Like at the beginning of my New York career, like, I feel like I just always wanted to talk about my work and introduce it. And like, now I'm finding myself more and more to like any time someone says, oh, what do you do? I say, oh, I work in entertainment. Mm. And that's kind of Mm -hmm. like, I try to give them an answer that is like, feels a little almost like cagey so that they, it's not the thing that they give me a follow-up question on, you know, like I want to kind of emphasize that hopefully my work is maybe not the most interesting thing about me or rather I'd much rather you get to know the other parts about me before you find out about my work if you don't already know about it. But sometimes people ask that question when they already actually know, which is also mm-hmm. embarrassing. Yeah. Jenna, what about you? I was just going to say, friend, I love that answer because it's like entertainment as in porn star or like animated <laughs> show. I don't know. It's like such a broad range of things. I really love that. It's so funny because I, th- I think I never want to talk about work in a not work setting um, but that's just my hangup. I don't mind if other people tell me about their jobs. I just prefer not to because I think it really helps me delineate that work-life balance. So I love that question, but I think I never ever want to be the summation of the things that I do anymore. So I always will just say I'm a writer. It's funny because if I say a journalist, people always say like, oh, freelance. It's like, is there something in the way I'm saying I'm a journalist that makes people like, am I saying it half seriously? Or is there some thing that's happening, some calculation on their end where they're like, all journalists I know are a freelancer. It's so weird. So people are always like, well, do you write one place? And then I'm like, oh, I just don't want to get into it. So I think, yeah, I'm, I tend to be more cagey, but I think I'm also in a place now where I feel like if people know my work, then we already are just kind of off to the races talking about it. And if not, then I just, I don't want to go down the spiral. It's not an upward spiral for me. So I don't want to do it. Yeah, I completely relate to that. I feel like, you know, it's been a minute, but for me, it happens on the airplane when people are like, oh, what do you do? And I say graphic (laughs) designer and I say it in the most boring tone I can. I'm like, oh, I'm a graphic designer. And if anyone ever asks what kind of graphic design, I say, oh, you know, like print and web. Yes. Nobody follows up. Not a soul. But wait, I have the best. I just heard the best answer to this question, though. Um, So on the pod, on the pod, we talked to Michelle Branch and she said she is such a bad liar that she always says musician, but then to get out of it, they'll be like, oh, like what, what kind of music? And she'll say like, oh, I'm in a country band. And she said that like <laughs> 99% of the time, people don't ask any more questions, even though her country band like won a CMA award. 
<laughs> that's incredible. When she said that, I was like, you're a genius. That's so funny. So I always think that writer sounds like actor where you're like, hmm, are you though? I bet you are. You know, it's like, yeah, like it is like that. It's such a flat note. But wait, how come none of us want to talk about our work ever, though? I, I'm yeah, sorry to seriously. Think. I feel like you're going to ask a question, Adam, but I, I'm just struck by that. How come nobody wants to talk about what they do for a living in like casual settings? Oh, I love talking about what I do for a living, but it needs to be in a safe space, which for me, I mm. define it's like people who, who get it at the top level, people who understand like the power in... Yeah you know, visual art and speaking to people in, you know, simple terms. Like there are so many spaces where I would love to talk about it, but like it needs to be past that surface layer where you're already one step down and we can just get into it. And then I'll be like, oh, I, you know, I'm a visual artist, text and image, and I'm really trying to mm. speak about mental health and mental illness in an approachable and accessible way, blah, blah, blah. I love keychains. And then it's like, cool let's do it mm. yeah like that's a really must have scenarios like that too like when we're together you know it's like we can talk about it because we yeah. we have the respect already and we're also not trying to like you know sometimes people ask and what they're really asking is like what can you do for me like i Ooh, haven't decided yeah. if i care to be polite to you until right. i know what that's i can right. get out of the exchange that's right that's right so yeah, spaces without that. It's like, sure, let's talk. I have ideas. I'd love feedback from a creative collaborator. Like, it's so fun in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the kind of very New Yorkian, like, what do you, what can you do for me is like that's right. part of why I don't talk about it anymore. And I think that's a really great observation, Jenna, about like I mean, I feel the same way, Adam. It's like I do love talking about work, but like with my girls, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm, with the people that mm-hmm. are like inside the the machine so that we can, you know, talk shit in like a shitty, even shittier way. I'm sorry. I don't even know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast, but you're allowed um, to swear on this podcast. Amazing. So, oh my gosh. But to answer your question, Jenna, I do feel like it's like twofold for me. Like, I think first of all, like it, it's becoming true and true that it's like really hard for me to concretize everything that I do into like mm-hmm. a, a a role or into into like a sentence even because um I don't know like but you we, we have such bodies of work and we work in so many different spaces and when you work for yourself a lot of people that do work for themselves um you know chose to do so because their dream job was not available at an institution right. and I think that we you know when we create our own work we create something that is kind of undefinable and then that makes it kind of harder to talk about and they have to do a ton of explaining to this random person at this cocktail party whatever um but for me it's also like at the beginning of my new york career i feel like it it i i, I grew really allergic to like the networking of it all especially mm-hmm. in like in like gay spaces because like this thing would happen to me all the time where i'd like think i'm talking to this like cute guy maybe i'm getting like flirty vibes and then like halfway through the moment I feel I realize that like he's not flirting with me he's like networking and I like it literally actually oh, to me, like a few nights ago where I was talking to this guy that I had a huge crush on and I thought I was getting vibes back and then the end of this conversation he was like I'm such a huge fan of your work I just like want to blah 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 and like ask me for something and I was like I can't do this so I'm yeah. finding my I'm trying to like I'm someone who's really addicted to work and mm-hmm. used to really 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 define myself by my work and have like done a lot of like, I've changed big time on that um, in the last few years. And so I've been challenging myself to kind of lean into like other facets of me and like passing conversation. Yeah, I think all three of us are sort of like people as brands, as jobs. And it's exhausting, you know, to your point, you're so Mm -hmm. much more than that. And there's also that thing of like, in order to tell you what I do for work, I basically have to talk about myself for five minutes without breaks. And at that point, I feel like such an asshole that like, I don't want to talk to me either, you know? <laughs> yeah. How have y'all have had like, had like success, like dividing personhood and, and work? You know what I mean? I think Jenna, you're, you are like so good at this. Yes. Um, I would love to like, know. From you. What? I want to know. Or like, how, yeah. How do you like navigate? Because like, I think that some, anybody could like meet you at a party or meet you in passing and literally never, ever, ever find out about your work and still <sighs> and yes. fall and fall in love Correct. with you every time. And I think that um, my Scorpio. Yeah, it is your Scorpio. And I feel like there are other parts where, <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like you're really good at it. 
Mm. It's admirable. But I, I guess, I mean, I guess I do separate. I don't know. I mean, I think I've had the same job for, or I've been attached to such a big institution for my entire career, my entire New York career. I like the way you said that, Fran. Um, so I think for me, it's always been something that, hmm, how do I want to say this? Actually, let me, let me, let me explain this through an anecdote. I was um, at a friend's birthday recently and I was coming off of like camping in the woods basically. So I was just like in my most pure state, you know, like I was just, I didn't look like shit. You know what I mean? I just looked like a random ass person. And when I walked into this party, I could tell there were a couple folks there who kind of assessed me. These people all in question were white, of course. Right. And they kind of assessed me and were just like, not interested. Right. And I was like, great. Like, I don't want to be on your radar. I don't want to be in your company. Like, I'm so happy to sit at this end of the table and talk to these people. And, um, I ended up kind of getting stuck with some of these folks for a couple of days because of the hurricane Henri that came in and wreaked havoc. And by like the second or third day, one of them had Googled me and was like, came up to me with like the biggest grin and was like, I didn't know you were a journalist. And I just had been waiting for that moment. Like I just, I felt so much pleasure in that moment because I was like, great. And like, you still will get nothing from me, you know? And I think I think that I've had such a strong visceral reaction to that. And I don't know if it's because moving through the world as a black person or what it is, but there's something about the way working at a place like the New York Times is such a status symbol, especially in a place like New York, that I'm very, very turned off when people assign more meaning to it than necessary. And I love being in groups of New York Times reporters and just getting into it. And like, I love that clubhouse and I love talking about the work that we do and all the ins and outs. And it's, it's actually like one of my favorite things. I love being in New York media, but what I don't like is when Fran, like you were saying before, people sort of all of a sudden they recategorize you or they have some radical new orientation towards you because of work. Like I find that to be really, and I think that also comes out of for years being a waitress, like being a server and having people again, categorize you as not interested, not smart, not interesting and writing you off because of that. And it's just, it's just not part of my value system and it's not part of how I want to move through the world. And so I think that's always been such a separation for me of like, this is the work that I do and this is who I am. Um, and I think it's also a product of being from a family where no one has fancy jobs. Like everyone is extremely working class and works for the government and like is very proud of that. And, and that's their business, you know? Um, but it's just not, I don't know. Like I just was never raised to have this sort of fetish attachment to how you make your money for a living. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but I, I think that's just been really, really important to me. And there's something about me really recognizing that it is kind of a persona. Um, and sometimes that's why I cringe when people off the bat are like, oh, I love your work because I'm like, oh, you're, you're interfacing, you're engaging with a version of me that's just 10% of who I actually am. And I'm very caffeinated. So I'm just going to say one more thing because I feel like I'm talking for a minute. But I think I'm in this new place though of like, trying to just receive and be received and not trying to do so much work in terms of trying to control how other people interact with me. Like if someone is like, Oh, I love your work. I'm like, amazing. Like, what do you like about it? You know, like I'm not like that kind of like trying to shrink back into the hedges, which I used to do. I think I'm really trying to understand that the work I do does offer up some intimacy. It does create this tether between me and whoever's engaging with it. And I, I kind of have to be present for that sometimes. Like it doesn't, it takes a lot of work to try to resist that and refuse that. I'm still shocked by it. I'm still like a little unmoored by it because I do feel like such a private person and I try to keep so much of my private life not up for consumption anymore, just out of um, preservation. But I think I'm also trying to lean more into porousness as much as it feels safe. Just to say like, I don't know. Yeah, people see my face. They might know it. Like, it's kind of cool. So, so what of it, you know? And yeah. then decide versus being more reactive. I think I struggled with that too. And I will hold on to this till the day I die. Our friend Kimberly Drew said to me, mm -hmm. um, or I don't even know if if Kimberly said it or just modeled it, where someone mm. someone in in our space said to Kimberly, like, I love your work. And Kimberly said, Thank you. And that shook me to my fucking core because my <laughs> instinct is like, Oh my God, don't say that. No, you don't. I'm terrible. I'm garbage. Thank you so much. Like if I have merch on me, I have to give it to you because you mm. said you like it. And for Kimberly to just be like, 
thank you. Yes. Change, like change my entire relationship to that expression. But then something that Fran said earlier about like, you think it's like a flirty moment or you think something's happening and then they kind of reveal that they're a fan. Like Mm. to me, number one killer, like Mm -hmm. as soon Mm -hmm. as I hear that, like I'm out, goodbye. Like, no. And I wonder what that means. What does that say? Is that healthy? Is it? I don't know. Because we are tied to our work and we're all proud of what we do, but it's also like, I, I think it's that thing of like, we love, we're so grateful for our fans, fans of our work. They enable us to do the work. And we are all fans of each other and of other people. I'm like the number one fan and and I will let you know that and have no shame around it. But yeah, it's like, there's just, there's levels to it. It's, mm, I, I mean, anybody who listens to my podcast knows that I unfortunately like have uh, slept with fans before. Ooh, and I feel that to me is like, a, <laughs> that's something I'm happy to like analyze in therapy. But I think that, you know, the, the Kimberly anecdote like the kind of figuring out those boundaries or like what Mm -hmm. you're what you're deciding to put out and what you're deciding not to is a lot about like how they enter the conversation you know what I mean I was talking to a mutual friend of ours literally on Saturday about and they this person has um is like very of the moment is super duper duper in the public and when I go to parties with him uh people are like coming up to him constantly yeah. constantly and there was even like one time we were at this party and we were chatting and he had like he was kind of telling me about that phenomenon and while we were talking in like a three-minute conversation like at least three people came out to say they loved his work and so I feel like um what we kind of talked about on Saturday was like depending on what they know about you or what what their what the, what part of their your work they like or kind of what energy they give off is kind of going to set the tone for you know how much yeah. you want to give into the conversation and i think that that kind of if you get really good vibes from someone or they like really loved a project of yours that um is something that you're really proud of that no one ever recognizes you know of course you want to engage with that person and yeah i think yeah. it, it kind of depends on how the tone is set so I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, Fran, I, I've been wanting to ask you this question because I've, I've known yeah. you for so long and I've really seen several iterations of your outwardly expressed identity. Uh, and, yeah. and I mean, listen, you're, Fran is a brand and a very shrewd brand thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if there was just a moment where you decided like, all right, it's time for a brand refresh, a brand pivot. Like the mm. brand messaging is out of touch with the reality of the brand. The brand is no longer connecting with its target demographic. Like I'm speaking about Fran, the brand, not the person. Um, was there a moment when you were like, okay, those two things need to be more closely aligned and they also need to fucking go because like, maybe I'm running out of time coasting in this space where I'm actually this person and I want to be there. Was there a moment for you when you were like, yeah, yeah, like I'm, let's do this. Like I want more. I mean, definitely there. I have a lot of, a lot of like aha moments for sure. I'm, I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm a seeker. I'm always like looking for things to like radicalize me and like change, but change, you know, the way I'm thinking about life. Um, like I consume a lot of like content like that. And, but like for me, I mean, the thing based on that question and the Fran brand, uh, it definitely was 20, I want to say 2015, maybe, where uh, I really woke up to the fact that um, I wasn't doing anything original, really, um, on social media, um, or really on just like, a, a, yeah, the public facing part of my life. I am a, a recovering Insta-gay, um, used to be the uh, the avocado toast on the marble countertop and the visco filter and like, you know what I mean? And I, I'm being really shady. And that's like I know a, a exactly what you mean. And you were her. You <laughs> were really her. good at being her. I was her. I, I was. I was. friends who are just like, I'm so glad we can talk about this era now because I was there for it and I remember it. <gasps> Yeah, and I, I had like- my my F two filter. I paid VSCO two ninety nine. Yeah, <laughs> I paid for that filter. Yeah, 
it is that. It's exactly that. And I, I think that I, I woke up to this, like, it was like, it was a horrible feeling, but like all, all, everything set in and I was like scrolling through my feed and I was like, oh my God, I'm not, I'm just replicating what everyone else is doing. Like I, I'm not, yeah. I, I, I yeah. have no original thought in like what I'm trying to do because I'm just trying to please people. Um, and I think that that really woke me up. I was going to ask how much of that feels like modeling what you thought you were supposed to want. And then how mm-hmm. much of that felt like self-preservation in a space that wasn't necessarily created for you? It was definitely the the latter. It was like me really, like, especially with the, um, I was going to name drop somebody, but that would be kind of, I, there's like, you know, a brand of like fitness people on like, Instagram that like kind of cultivated this kind of body image and this very big aspirational lifestyle that I definitely wanted to be a part of. But I also knew innately that I am not structurally what people want to consume on social media all the time because algorithms are racist and the way we engage with social media content is like racist and like queer phobic and like all the things. And so I didn't want to be gender nonconforming on a public platform. I wanted to you know, hide myself. And I wanted to, you know, just blend in with what everyone else is doing. Um, And at a certain point, you know, you have to stop living and making work out of fear. Like, that's just not how um, you make things. And I I think in back in 2015, I kind of was like, I don't want to, I just want to post whatever I want. And I want to make whatever I want. And I want everyone to know, like to see all my messiness and to see what really makes me me, you know? Yeah. I feel like it's a delicate balance, but when you're so good at crafting content for others, you naturally do it for yourself. And I know, Fran, you didn't want to name drop, but as you were saying, as you were telling, you know, the the sort of history in my head, I'm like triangulating and I can identify these different pockets or, or people that I think that you were at a time aligned with. And I know this because I was digesting their content and found it aspirational too. And it's funny yeah. how we shifted from like one version of this and then the sort mm-hmm. of like the soft butt magazine moment, yeah. which was like a very specific thing. And these different pockets of things that that we, I don't know, were sold as like, this is what you should want. This is what it means to be uh, a modern queer person who's upwardly mobile. You know, like this is what, and, and I, I love the you that you've shaken out at because, or when I say you, I mean the, the public persona of you that you've shaken out at. And I, I also love that there are people on the internet who fucking hate you because <laughs> no, and I, I genuinely love it because that's real life. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. we can't be universally. Like I love that when you started being your true self, some people were like, Oh, Fran again, that guy, Fran. It's like, yeah, it's, it's not for you. And you don't get to know the the mm-hmm. layers and intricacies so no shit you don't like it. It's because like we're eating more than avocado toast. And if you don't want to eat here, go to another restaurant. Yeah. To please everyone is to please no one. You know, like it's, yeah. it's, uh, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it, it, it's such a, it's an artifice. And um, there, I think I, especially like when I first started working in media, you're kind of sold on this idea of like the universal story and like the things that everyone wants to see and read and talk about and like especially in entertainment and publishing spaces a lot of people are always like yeah they want that this needs to be universal like it's a universal story and like that's just like not that's an artifice like to make something universal is to make something white to make something straight to make something cisgender and i I it really took me like you know too long to to figure that out um, and to understand that, like, specificity and multiplicity of perspective is, like, yeah, like, the thing that, you know, makes life great. Mm, yeah. Well said. I, that was, like, a perfect encapsulation of, I think, where where we were going with this. And I hope I mm-hmm. hope that anyone listening who still feels pressure to flatten themselves out for any number of reasons, career um, or, or safety or otherwise, can feel a little bit more liberated um, either now or or know that that kind of liberation maybe can come for them in the future. Because I do know there are people who, for the sake of personal safety, can't share 100% of their authentic selves, even if they want to. That's not to say that everyone should want to. Many people don't. But but mm-hmm. if you want to and you're not there yet, um, just know that that you can and, and that you will and that it doesn't um, exclude you from 
you know, your versions of success and, and being your true self will only serve to attract the types of people who are extremely receptive to it um, and kind of weed out the people who don't want it, which is a gift because you mm-hmm. can waste so much time pleasing people who will just never want your particular flavor. Um, Jenna, I want to ask about your wellness journey because you're someone who is very open about um, exploring and, and sharing and, and healing um, in your one-on-one work, in group settings. And I feel like even if I don't always take every recommendation or suggestion that I see on your social media, um, by extension of knowing you, I'm sort of like soaking up these ideas that shift my perception of things. And so I wonder nice if there's something say. that that's how I feel about it. Right. Like that I am just to connect it back to what Fran was saying, like there is a real power in sharing your life and your true experience. And it's not necessarily that you're always going to be selling something, but that mm-hmm. passive education and like modeling, you know, modeling behavior um, is really impactful, often more impactful than a direct, Hey, everyone do this. Um, so maybe it's counterintuitive, but I, I am wondering, is there something that you're just like, Adam, you should try this. Like, I know you, I see you, I, I hear the words coming out of your mouth. Like, have you considered X or, or Y? (laughs) Oh gosh. I mean, those are nice things to say. Oh, I'm, you know, it's funny. I'm in this place right now where I'm, I'm trying not to recommend things to people because it's so varied and we really are, oh my gosh, we're just really coming out of a time into a time, moving through a time where everything we need is so radically different. Like I feel like the last two years or so has really been such a dramatic shift in perspective, such a reorientation of what we need to be well, what's making us ill and what we can and can't live without. And so I think prior to entering into this period of the pandemic, it was a lot easier to talk about wellness as, you know, take internet breaks, drink more water, go look at the sky, you know, practice presence, practice self-awareness, et cetera, like get rest, you know, and, and I've, you know, those things don't even work for me anymore. You know, like I don't sleep really well anymore. And I used to be such an advocate of like, just get lots of sleep. And like, that's, I just, I don't sleep well. Like I have so much more anxiety and I don't feel safe when I sleep necessarily. So I have a lot of hypervigilance, you know, I I have a lot of hypervigilance just coming from a, a state of like, really sitting with the cruelty of the world. I mean, not to be super grim about it, but I think I'm just also recognizing that, you know, there just has to be so much more space for every single person to be exactly where they are at any moment in time. And that it's just very hard to prepackage anything and that any attempt to do so, yeah, it can run the risk of flattening someone or shaming them or making them feel inadequate or like not enough. So I think I feel very comfortable talking about where I'm at, what's working for me and what's not working for me versus trying to be prescriptive in any way. And I think even in a lot of my wellness practices, like they're, you know, I had had finished sound teacher training right before the pandemic. And I had this idea of like, I want to host these sound baths. Like a lot of my wellness journey is shaped by going into spaces that were predominantly white and straight and cis and feeling like very out of place. And like, I can't go as deep as I want to, or even, you know, like wanting to go on, do more, you know, plant medicine journeys and like macro dosing journeys and being like everyone in this space for the most part is white. And like, how, how safe do I feel really like opening these doors to my inner conscience in this group? I don't know. So let me see what that looks like to facilitate those things myself or whatever. And then just coming, you know, out of this period of quarantine and still being in the pandemic. And I'm just like, oh, I'm so tired. I can barely hold space for myself, let alone anyone else. I know this is kind of more than you asked, but it's just, it's something I'm thinking a lot about too, because I think even... I mean, that's, that's kind of why, you know, I'm, I'm calling in from this residency in the Adirondacks, which is, I don't think I'm saying that word right, but I don't care. Typo and it stays. Um, because I'm <laughs> really trying to reshift and reshape uh, my relationship to work and my relationship to productivity and creativity and myself. And it's really scary. Like I'm trying to do this work of like detach me from my work identity while still figuring out what creative output looks like. Cause I'm just very naturally a creative person and it's maybe one of the scariest things I've done. And so 
I have a lot of fear right now that I'm grappling with, which is just fear of um, relevancy, fear of disappearing, fear of um, not mattering. I don't know, because I've just stopped engaging online a lot because it's all I was thinking about was, was crafting my next post or how am I positioning myself and like, what do I want to share? What do I want to tell people about how to be right now? And the truth is like, I don't even have those answers for myself. So it felt really crucial to just go back to basics, go back to zero, like who am I and what are my needs before I can even attempt to even talk about that publicly, let alone tell somebody else what to do. I do think though that right now, one of the most important things I'm considering, and this may be helpful for anybody else out there, but is just really sitting with self-awareness. Like, how can I draw awareness to myself at any moment during the day if I feel uneasy or, you know, just notice how I'm feeling? Like, what's coming up as I'm having dinner? What's coming up as I'm riding the subway? Like, what's coming up? What's the first thought in my mind? And I just, I feel like that's the data collection that's really important right now to figure out what are the routines and rituals that are serving us and what's not. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I really love Prentice Hemphill, who's an embodiment worker and just like an incredible person that I started to know in that weird pandemic friendship kind of way that, you know, you start getting to know new people over the internet and we haven't ever really met and don't know each other super well, but have talked on the phone a few times and they just do incredible work on their podcast about the importance of embodiment as grappling with the trauma of oppression and all other types of traumas that we just experience as humans. but that's something Prentice talks a lot about, which is just like, how do you tap into where you are in space? And that's something I'm thinking a lot about all the time right now. That was a much longer I, answer than you probably wanted, no, but it's complicated. We're here for the long answers, right? We're here for the, the nuance <laughs> yeah, and right. the, the processing out loud, because the way that you describe avoiding being prescriptive um, for the sake of, you know, allowing people to be exactly who they are and also recognizing that a lot of wellness falls short after two years of, of lockdowns inside our homes and our bodies and our brains is exactly how I feel. And I, you know, in particular with this new book, I didn't set out to write an advice book and I don't consider it an advice book. It's so much more about recognizing who you are in this moment and you know, starting at that foundation and then maybe just sharing things that have been helpful reminders for myself. And I guess I selfishly hoped that that you would be an enlightened being who is, <laughs> you know, I mean, I do think that you're smarter than I am. No, um, no but not I, at all. I was hoping that I was hoping you would be like, Adam, the secret is like this. And my yeah. my depression would, you know, like my skin would clear up and, you know, all of that. And no, I, th- I think everything that you had to say, especially about being here now, especially about um, awareness and, and the data collecting was such an excellent point. And I really have been feeling that. Um... But I have to say, though, you gave us an early preview of You Are Here For Now, and I have spent a little time with it. And I really, I, I when I first heard that you're working on this book, I was like, oh, I need this book because I need to figure out how to grapple with like where success and social media and presence and embodiment and surrender and also empowerment, like all meet, like I, it's exactly what I'm grappling with in my own life right now. And I think there are just so many beautiful parts in it. And I, I don't know if you consider this work to be kind of self-help and I say that and not in a negative way, but I think there's a lot of um, folks on social media and our collective circles right now who are kind of capitulating right now towards that genre as a way for trying to make sense of right now. And this very, like, to me, it reminds me a lot of Dharma talks or like even Ram Das, RIP, who I love, you know, and just thinking about people who are really trying to apply these principles of just presence, you know, like really extrapolating, like, we live in this very hyper attentive, always on hyper vigilant, hyper surveilled reality. And it's exhilarating because we're able to, I don't know, maximize our creativity, which also means commodifying our identities, commodifying our creativity. I don't know. But but there's something that there's this layer of folks, I include you in this layer, who are really figuring something out about talking through both the abundance and the anxieties, the insecurities, and also the vast 
possibilities of this moment. I find it to be really incredible. I love it. I love it so much. I think it's so necessary. I really appreciate that. Such a, such a succinct like summation of what I'm trying to accomplish with this book, because it is very much a book about processing and, and the visual artwork, I mean, makes that metaphor so clear where we see step-by-step transformations that all start in the same place with a, a clean slate of paper, which in, in my uh, metaphor brain, like is each of us and the way that we, we grow through um, damage, you know, in the form of tearing or the way that we create structure in the form of folds or um, intentional cutting away. And I don't have answers, but my work is always an extension of me processing out loud in the same way that if you talk to me for long enough, like my brain starts looping at a certain point, it's like, okay, Adam is just like, I am always <laughs> like this. Like when you said earlier that you were feeling caffeinated, I always feel caffeinated. Like that's my, that's an extension of my mental illness. It's also just like, I'm a Jewish person from the East coast. So the book is, is very much like a slow down deep breath. Okay. Here are the pieces. How do they go together. And I will say, being a creative person who then gets to collaborate with others, it was such a unique experience to be like, okay, here's art and here's text about all my insecurities, but also hopes, but also wishes, but also best advice for a person I love. And then to hand it to an editor whose job is to dig through creative people's work and, and find points of connection and mm-hmm. alignment was such a unique therapeutic exercise during this time. Um, and I was constantly joking with my editor and agent, like, okay, you got to invoice me for therapy. And then I was like, okay, well you get 15%. So you kind of (laughs) are. You know, I feel like that, um, like the whole, like, I don't have the answers kind of thing that like that refrain, I think is like such a source of truth. I do love that about your work, Adam. I funny thing about our origin story that Jenna and listeners might not know is that I started out as a fan of Adam J. Kurtz before I, before we would be inevitably. And that's why friend. we never made out. And that's why we that's, never made out. Yeah. Um, so cringe. You know, I think that like for me, when I'm finding <laughs> like, especially, you know, as of last year, like that it is such a, it's such a trap, a trap that I'm highly susceptible to, to like, um, think that you know it all and to like, you know, tweet these like beautiful Mm -hmm. aphorisms about how you just get it. And like, this is like fundamentally what it just is when, because that's what social media rewards. Um, They, they reward, you know, succinctness, flattening of ideas, knowing exactly what you believe, like being really rigid in those ideas. And like, again, I'm still susceptible to that and still do that. But I, I also am finding that like, I feel so much more free when Mm -hmm, I say mm -hmm. publicly and privately that I just, I don't know, you know, I I think it's, it's, and also to be like as fluid as we all can be in what we believe is like of the utmost importance. And especially, you know, with last year, I feel like we watched a lot of um, cultural sentiment around like people kind of realizing that the things that they thought they believed or thought was the reality of this world were like totally not true. And now people are shifting what they believe. And it's because we're so rigid in what we understand that we get into that trap in the first place. Right. And so even when, you know, how we engage with social media or how we engage with like wokeness culture, like, or like how we create quote unquote public accountability or whatever, it's just like, always put those things into question, be skeptical um consider everything problematic you know what i mean like consider everything like within within like your kind of like digest as something that is in process or something in the making of and like i don't know i i, I think a lot about that i um i i think a lot about that in terms of like the coming out of it all on social media um and like cuz like i myself right now i'm like on a gender journey Um, And trying to figure out, like, where my gender fits into, like, the spectrum of, like, you know, things that you can identify as. And there's this, like, unnecessary mental Mm -hmm. pressure to, like, announce what you are. You know what I mean? And I think we we watch and, and I think it's amazing when people do do that and they find a home in that or they have to do it for professional reasons or whatever. Um, And but I also know that, like, I shouldn't have to feel that way. You know what I mean? Uh, 
I think it's, it's, it, it, it's such a better model, quote unquote, for someone else, for me to say publicly, like, I don't know, I'm kind of figuring it out and it might take years, you know, before I even have like language or label yeah. for mm-hmm, it. Um, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you are allowed to not know too. You know what I mean? I think that, I think that's kind of, it's in that fluidity, in the kind of like unknowingness it, that's actually creating a kind of quote unquote representation on its own, or at least something that will reflect someone back and help them feel less pressured about it. It's sort of like um, a beautiful trap door where mm-hmm. to say, I don't know, is in and of itself somewhat of yeah. an answer. And so you can sort of, you get like a free pass. It's like, oh, okay, well, I do, I know that I don't know. Okay. And then your brain is like, oh, great. We've answered that and we can move on. Um, but I do think it's it's terrible how it's happened. But this this sort of great stopping and then subsequent slowdown has led to so much transformational change for so many people because it's very easy to be caught up in in the everything of everything. And, you know, I personally know so many people who have had coming out journeys, gender identity mm, wow. journeys, um, weddings called off, yes. divorces, um, but also the COVID, the COVID romances, you know, realizing, right. hey, this is someone who I can be with at the end of the world. I need to marry this person and do life together. And seeing everyone use this time for great personal transformation has been so encouraging. And, and that is maybe the only silver lining I can think of mm-hmm. is that people were forced inward. And some of those people had never been in before. Some of those people have not built a, a body of work and a career around the practice of looking in. Um, I want to I want to pivot real quick to something maybe a little bit darker. Um, I'm curious how you both think about legacy. If you think about legacy, how would you like to be remembered after you're gone? Um, if you were to die after this phone call, don't. But like, if you were to, like, what would you want us? to think or feel or would you want us to think or feel at all? Is this something that y'all think about or is it I, just me? I unfortunately think it, I mean, I'm always, I'm Jewish, right? I'm always yeah, thinking about death. I mean, I, for me, like I, if you were, if you were to ask me like what my, my biggest fear is, it's, it's dying and having lived an unremarkable life. Yeah. Really? yeah having, it's, it's dying and not having like people Friend. like terror. You know? <laughs> my biggest fear is not dying. I know. Right. <laughs> My biggest fear is being immortal. <laughs> that's a different. Yeah. that's a different kind of horror. A very t- a tuck everlasting kind of horror. Um, I I feel like, I mean, for me, it's like what I would really like to imprint on the world is, like, I guess my the work I do for my friends and my community and like kind of what we exchange out of each other, and within that, showing people, especially queer and trans people and people in marginalized communities that they have immediate access to a whole community of people that they have something in common with and you build together and you collectively care for each other and you communally dream together um, and are better because of it. And I feel like so many people stay in isolation or like burrow their head, their heads through work or think through everything on their own because we live in such an individualistic society and like kind of the lie of the American dream is like, you're kind of working toward this like nuclear family model. And I just, I feel like I want people to understand and know that there's like possibility in seeing like a family for yourself. That is just so many different, like, um, like folks from different backgrounds, different practices, different things to offer you in your life and you offer them. Um, and I guess also within that is like, not only do you have access to like a, a community as a queer trans person, as a marginalized person, but mm. you are, you are also just extraordinary. You know, you are like stand out, you stand out and are, um, like you have a, a distinct point of view and something really, really beautiful and extraordinary about you because you mm. don't fit into the quote unquote universal story. Because you are not seen by society because like, you know, you don't look like everybody else. That actually is your superpower. And I feel like I'm always trying to be a, a champion of that and oh, helping people so see what they have access to, you know. 
I love that you answered the question by, it by was a mostly avoiding was and then saying this, which is so true and beautiful. And Fran, if you die, <laughs> no, it was gorgeous. I mean, Fran, if you die in the next two years, I will play this video at your funeral and I'm going on the record. I will help organize yes. your memorial. And like after this, if you want to send me your preferred yeah. high-res photo yeah. and then I'll have it. You have my consent, but you. I always have said this yes. to my friends, like. I have the photo, so if any of you die, I'll make sure it's a good one. And Jenna, we're not 100% very like Thank tight you. like that, but I'm letting you know that we could be. And if you send me the photo, I will make <laughs> sure no other photos are released. Like I will help you control your image after death if that's what you want. But but what do you, what do you want? I do tell people that. I do tell people that. I'm like, if I die tomorrow, please throw an amazing party with lots of flowers, lots of seafood, shellfish, oysters. I'm talking juices dripping. This is so good. I almost want you to die. On the water. I know. I mean, the thing is, the good news is, Adam, I'm going to have this party annually. It's called my birthday anyway, whether I'm, it's my death day or my birthday. It's, it's the same thing. So there's lots of practice, lots of time for it. You know, in this weird time of recalibration and reassessment and like regathering of self that I feel like I'm doing right now, I've been spending a ton of time with um, older folks in my life and some of the elders in my life and asking them who their elders are, like what their values are, what they wish, you know, they had done differently. I mean, even at this residency that I'm at, there's a woman in her 80s in my cohort and, and I'm just loving spending time with her. And she kind of confessed to me the other night that she'd never been swimming in this lake. And I was like, let's do it. You know, it's like, I just, I think I'm really in this place of trying to think about, you know, I hope I live a long time. You know, I, I, I don't know if I will, it's not guaranteed, but I, I think I am really trying to think about it in a not abstract way. It's just like, what are people in their late seventies and eighties thinking about, you know, and what are the things they're concerned with? And the thing that keeps kind of coming through is that there's a lot of power in like a public legacy. There's a lot of power, obviously, in like kind of what Fran was talking about, like kind of this message that lives beyond us and that transcends us and and having some some sort of archive or an imprint you know i'm thinking so much right now of marsha p johnson because it was her birthday recently and just thinking about the way she mothered a revolution the way she mothered us i was talking about this with our mutual friend raquel willis about all the ways in which you can give birth to ideas give birth to things that are still being you know, we are in some ways Marsha's children. Like she, she, we are her legacy, right? In a lot of ways. But I think for me, as someone who I can't really see myself, I'm not, I'm not living in that way. I'm, not, I'm, my, my sphere is not that big. So when I think about my legacy, I think a lot about the people who are in my life and the people yeah. who I have direct access to, and like how have I shaped them? How have I showed up in their lives? How have how have they shaped me? I mean, that's kind of what I'm thinking about right now, which is how can I be a very good person in the most immediate sense to the people that have I have access to right now? And that's as far as I've gotten. Um, but of course, I want to leave behind a big body of work. I mean, I want to leave a lot of media behind. I want to leave materials and articles. And I feel like I haven't even done a tenth of what I'm meant to do in this lifetime, which is both exhilarating and maddening, you know? And so there is like a print legacy that, or a physical legacy that I want to leave behind of books and films and podcast series and things like that. But I also recognize that we live in a time of just mass yeah. media making, which is kind of the thing we haven't yet said when we're talking about social media, is that the way it's kind of coaching and shaping all of us into being, um, biased documentarians because we're all kind of making media with a very particular lens and aesthetic, but we're, we're all leaving behind a body of work that, you know, that hopefully these corporations will value enough to preserve, but it's, it's, it takes the pressure off of me personally to think about a legacy because I'm just like, Oh God, yeah. there's so many legends in my lifetime. Seriously. Like there's just so many people making and leaving incredible legacies. So I'm not really thinking about it. In an, in an active way <laughs> right now. Well, first of all, I just want to say, I feel like I'm a combination of you both where my hope is just to, to leave enough for the people in my, in my, you know, that first ring of the ripple effect that their ripple might go on. And I talk about this in the book mm -hmm. too. Like that's, 
I think a power that all three of us and, and many of us listening possess is like really all of us possess that power to, to impact one person positively, to help one person on their journey, to, to hold one door open and then let that person go through that door and they open another door and another door. And before you know it, you've got 10 generations of people and it's that 11th generation that changes the world or you know, becomes a, a functional mm. politician or, you know, any, any sort of actual life generation defining moment. But I also, I love what you were saying about imagining yourself when you're older in your seventies and eighties, because I think a lot of young people aren't quite thinking that. And I also think for different types of people with different mental illness or mental health related issues, thinking about a future that far ahead is just not something that's on the radar. Um, I, for mm-hmm. a very long time, mm-hmm. did not mm-hmm. picture it because I assumed I would be dead. And to wake up at age 32 and be like, I didn't die. I, w- I was supposed to be dead right now and I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a real power then in thinking about, oh my God, I am excited to be 70 and 80. And how do I build for that? And how do I prepare? Right. How do I care for my body and brain now to ensure that I have a good shot when I get there? Um, you know, those of us, um, who, who are able to save for the future in some way, I started, um, I started like a retirement savings thingy <laughs> at my last salary position where they did, they did a 401k thing. And I was like, you know what? I've never had anything. I, I didn't grow mm-hmm. up with financial literacy. We didn't have it. But in my adulthood, I started thinking like, you know what? Even if I die, I have a family now. And that's something too about marriage where you're like, oh, it's, it's bigger than me. So now every time I think about the future, mm. I'm so proud that I even think about the future at all and that I want one. But again, to my point from before, mm-hmm. I don't want it to be too long. Like I do, I want to die, but not yet. Yeah. Oh my gosh. All right. Last question um, for each of you. Where can we find you online? It almost <laughs> feels like a joke at this point. Oh, you can find me at Fran Squishco um, on Instagram and Twitter. Um, my Substack is also Fran Squishco, and you can subscribe to my newsletter there. I loved how ready Fran was. That was so good. Fran is a pro. All my stuff is always at J Deluxe. My website's jdeluxe.com. All my stuff lives there. Pretty easy to find. Uh, I'm at Adam JK. If anyone's interested in seeing some of the art we're talking about or the book. Um, Thank you both so much for being (laughs) on the pod with me. I'll see you soon. You've been listening to You Are Here For Now, the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And pick up a copy of my book, You Are Here For Now, for yourself or someone you love at your favorite bookstore or adamjk.com. Until next time, be kind to yourself and remember, you are here, but you're not alone.